how the fuck do I tell my mom about this? This voice in your head is so central to your life and you've been so rewarded for using it. And it's so close. It like mediates your behavior so constantly. You, you think it's you. It's like a, a pair of glasses that you've never had the opportunity to take off. One of the fruits that meditation can give you is the realization that there is this like essential sameness to everything. Life is always gonna look like you working towards something that's never gonna happen. You imagine like the ease of a hummingbird and you don't think like the hummingbird's like, fuck, 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 I gotta cross this flower off my to-do list. And it is often the case that the things I write that people like are things that I hesitated to write and then hesitated to publish. This is Audience of One, and I'm your host, Spencer Kier. My guest today is Sasha Chapin. Sasha is a writer, coach, and the co-founder of a new fragrance line. Sasha and I talk about awakening, benefits of meditation, deep okayness, coaching, writing, fragrance, and more. Please enjoy. What's one topic or problem or question that's been consuming a lot of your attention or maybe even background processing recently? Something that you've just been kicking around and continually revisiting? Yeah, one concern for me is how do I explain the transformative effects of long-term meditation to my mom? The impetus behind this is I want to write a book about um, awakening. And awakening is the word I hate the least. I still kind of hate it, but of the available words, it's the word I hate the least for what happens to people if they meditate a lot uh, routinely. The really dramatic psychological changes that can occur. Um, and the problem with explaining it is it's a lot like explaining psychedelics to somebody who's never had psychedelic experiences before or sex to someone who's a virgin or any one of those experiences where the other side of the experience is a you crossed a threshold that makes you look at the experiences on the other side of the threshold differently. Um, it makes you look at your whole experience differently. And navigating that gap is difficult. And another difficult thing about it is lots of people have done some kind of meditation. Lots of people have had a basic mindfulness training and they understand what it means to have a bit more sensory clarity, be a bit more in the moment. And those things are important parts of it, but that are, those dimensions are only like a, like a little piece of the picture of like long-term meditation, what it does to you. Why the interest in taking people from maybe zero to 0.1 or one, instead of taking those people who have dabbled and have the, the requisite context? So I've become aware, and this is really amazing for me and also really humbling that my writing has helped some people look at their psychology and their experience in ways that they haven't before. Um, and so I think one of the largest impacts I could have as a person is to introduce people to the transformative opportunities of serious meditation practice. It can be really amazing in ways I think are not generally recognized. Um, there's this whole idea of like 10% better, like meditation can make you 10% happier and it can, and that's amazing. It can also make you 10 times happier, um, which is involves a different kind of practice and different goals. Um, I think um, also I just find it fun. Like I would be a bit silly if I just said, oh, it's for the good of humanity, but also I like I like writing things. I like explaining things I know about because it makes me feel smart and capable. And people are like, oh, your writing is good. And that satisfies my 
narcissistic urges. What is the, so a lot of people use the phrase awakening. I think it carries a lot of different connotations in different contexts or dependent on your experiences and perspective. Uh, the, the first way of defining it that I would come to based on my own experience, if you're familiar with the work of Anthony DeMello um, and awareness, he talks a lot about this concept of awakening. That's kind of where my head goes. How would you best define it in your own words? What What is awakening in your experience? The reason I like the word awakening as opposed to enlightenment or realization or a bunch of other ones that are out there is that awakening sounds more like a process that just keeps continuing. Um, like the ING at the end of it um, makes it sound like something that's ongoing. And in my experience, that mm -hmm. is a true thing. Like There are important experiences that happen to meditators reliably, but you can just keep refining your contemplative experience uh, throughout your life. It's not something like it's you just pin the tail on the donkey and then the tail's on the donkey. Uh, how would so I define it? You don't think that there's a an arrival aspect to this or uh, at least in, in your experience, there hasn't been, there is still space for continual refinement? So I think it's um, sort of a both and thing where they're very there are punctuating events that lots of meditators experience that are similar. Like it's a similar finding um, that certain people have a moment where the boundary between themselves and the universe suddenly seems kind of fake and made up. Um, and that that is often very sudden and very dramatic and very long lasting. But um, like the work of just continuing to be alive to your existence and to understand your psychology and the world around you um, like that, I don't think ever ends. And I think it's really dangerous when people say like, I'm a perfect being, I'm fully awake and I'm really here. There's no, you know, there's no doer, there's no thinker. There's just, there's just enlightened action or whatever, you know, like people who say that are often very um, intelligent, compassionate, good people. But I think like, the idea of a perfect being, that kind of language, that kind of like I'm done attitude um, is just an invitation for people's shadow sides to come out there, ego to come out their narcissism. Um, and it also invites all sorts of projection. Like if, if you put yourself in a position where other people are likely to regard you as Jesus, um, you're just, you know, there's so much temptation there. There's so much um, potential for that to go wrong. So backing up for a second, um, beyond the question of whether it's an ongoing process or not, I think there are lots of ways you can explain psychological changes for meditation. And the problem is that there's a certain core of it that is ungraspable. The thing happens to a different part of you than the part of you that explains and understands things. And so the part of you that explains and understands things is just looking at what's going on, thinking like, how the fuck do I tell my mom about this? And <laughs> so there are various explanations. I mean, there's that whole thing in the Tao Te Ching about the... Um, Tao that can be named is not the true Tao. And I, I feel like anyone who's going on this contemplative journey, as you're explaining it, you're thinking like, wow, this is a terrible explanation. I'm really not capturing the essence of it. So I think in my book, what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer like a, a, a section that's a, a series of different explanations, knowing that none of them are going to be that good. Um, so one way to think about it is from a very young age, you are rewarded for restraining yourself. Um, 
you act out in some way, like you throw a temper tantrum or um, you stare at a pretty girl for too long, or, you know, you want to do something else, but um, you're forced to sit in math class and do math. And then when you manage to restrain yourself and sit in math class, good things happen for you. Uh, and so there's this manager program in your brain and it gets more and more and more work. Um, and in some ways, your ability to navigate the world depends on self-consciousness, like you rejecting certain desires and emotions and thoughts and separating yourself from them and being like, this is not right. This is not appropriate. Um, as well as, um, your ability to model yourself and your reputation to be like, well, if, 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 if I do this kind of thing then people will look at me a certain way, there's this Spencer character out there in the world and people will look at this Spencer character disapprovingly if the Spencer character acts in this way. Right. So you do that over and over and over again. And then of course, there's a certain amount of mission creep. Um, you get to this point with the inner monologue and the inner manager where like, you know, you're shaving and then all of a sudden you're litigating an argument you had with your like ex-girlfriend six years ago, where you're like still stewing over something that happened to you. Um, or you're still thinking about some stupid thing you said a decade ago. Um, and because the managerial software, this voice in your head is so central to your life and you've been so rewarded for using it and it's so close, it like mediates your behavior so constantly. You, you think it's you. It's like a, a pair of glasses that you've never had the opportunity to take off. And then you're like, oh, these glasses are just part of my face. And then slowly by a deep meditation practice, you can relax and relax and relax and relax. And your system learns that if the manager chills out for a second, you're not going to die. You're not going to do anything horrible. You know how to be a person at this point, basically. Like you can improve, but you've got the basic routine down. And then I've, I've always felt like there is a chicken and egg problem in regards to this uh -huh. managerial character and whatever sits behind it where the the is the managerial one not the one that has to kick off this process or express counterintuitively or paradoxically desire in disrupting itself or dissolving itself like what is the right uh what what's the direction of kind of like causality there is it or, or uh am i thinking about it in too like bifurcated a way no, I think, I think I get what you're saying. Cause it's like, okay, if your story is there's this tyrannical manager that wants to run everything, but then practice, I don't think practice gets rid of the manager, but sort of demotes the manager into like a member of a mm -hmm. committee rather than like a dictator is the way I often put it. Um, but doesn't the manager have to want to participate? And isn't that weird if we're thinking of the manager as this like all knowing tyrant that wants nothing, but uh, to continue ruling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think, and, and maybe this is just intellectualizing it because at the end of the day, it does happen. Like there, there's plenty of people who have, uh, gone through this process through meditation. So maybe it's not even worth discussing, but it's always just been something that's tripped me up. So I think the super interesting thing that happens is lots of people get into meditation. So if you asked me, three years ago, why I was into meditation, I would have told you some story like, which is about 
like three years ago is sort of like just before I started having like really powerful experiences. Um, if you had asked me then, like, why are you doing this? I would have said, well, you know, I want to like be more alive in my day-to-day -day life. I want to enjoy my experience more. I want to discover what's really going on in the mind. And that was there. But also there was an ego layer that's like, I would like to be better than other people. I would like to have special superpowers. Uh, I would like to be, you know, more charismatic. I would like to be this perfected being or whatever. And I think almost mm -hmm. everybody who gets into meditation, like a layer of their mind, like is genuinely wanting to know the truth, wanting to come home, wanting to like relax. Another layer of their mind is like, this thing is going to improve me. It's like a self-improvement project. And I think there are some self-improvement aspects to it, but I don't think that's the main thing to recommend it. Like if I was looking to like become more <laughs> effective as an employee or whatever, or as an entrepreneur, I would have done something else at that time, looking back, like the, however many hours I spent on it. It's not primarily about becoming more effectiveness. In fact, there's a lot about the contemplative path that is like humiliating. Like noticing how insane right. you are, how insecure. Um, and so I think for many people, that's the Trojan horse, though, is the yeah. the, the lens of self-improvement that then drives this more contemplative, deeper, uh, yeah, analysis of, of the ego that people wouldn't opt into uh, gleefully from the get go. Right, right, right. If they if they didn't think. And I think that's so like that is so common. You know, it's not like it's not like it's different in that way from anything else. Like people are like, oh, I'm gonna get this new job and then I'm gonna things are gonna start my life is gonna look like it should at that point. Or, you know, I'm gonna like date somebody more attractive and then my life is gonna be amazing. Or, you know, I'm gonna like get so many Twitter followers and then my life is gonna be amazing. And they just think the same thing about meditation. And there's this, you know, Zen saying from birth to death, it's just like this. One of the fruits that meditation can give you is the realization that there is this like essential sameness to everything. At some point, you're mm -hmm. going to cope with how things are in this moment. Or you're not. Some people just never learn to cope with that. They're always like looking towards the thing and the next thing and the next thing. Um, I think I could have lived my whole life like that, which is like spooky to think about. Yeah. No, I've... I've feel that way and have written i've journaled to myself and tweeted a little bit about this recently uh i think the most recent thought i had to myself was that one of the greatest fears i have is that uh, i will live my life constantly grasping at and striving for arrival uh this infinitesimally small moment of resolution of solution where you yeah. get that thing you wanted and yet it's so fleeting and it's 0.001% of your existence. And yet that's what we orient our entire life around. This is like, effectively, I'm just describing goal-oriented living um, or objective-oriented living. But uh, the struggle I've been having is like, it's one thing to recognize that that's how I'm living. It's an entirely different one to change that way of living. Um, and I think to your point, like meditation is a means of getting there. But uh, I'm lacking that like, quote unquote, realization that would allow me to, to get there. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because I think like one thing that used to really confuse me 
when I heard people talking about this very thing, moving away from goal orientation, is I would hear people talk about not being so goal oriented, not being so focused on outcomes and just sort of being here. And I would think, oh, that just means like chilling in your house and not doing anything. But no, like if, if you just like, like if I just like surrender to the creature I am, I happen to find myself doing things and I live in California and I need to pay the rent. So I'm running a business. Um, uh, it's just like regarding things as both like continuously incomplete and never like always complete and never complete sort of at the same time. Like you're never going to have the one moment where uh, everything clicks into place. And that's terrifying. But if you just chill out, you can sort of surrender in motion. Um, you be like, oh, I'm, I'm working today and I'm working towards some goal, I guess. But that's always what life is going to look as you're like. Life is always going to look I like. Can't, right. <laughs> life is always going to look like you working towards something that's never going to happen. Yeah. How, how does that, yeah. like, I think you're, you starting your new business is maybe a great uh, practical kind of microcosm of this. Uh, most people, when they start a business, they are striving for some end for that business and like continually setting new objectives for it. And you have to, uh, at least a lot of people would argue, you have to grind. And I know you've spoken uh, in other podcasts and then you're writing about kind of your aversion to this idea of grinding. And uh -huh. so trying to reconcile still like, how do you how do you successfully build a business without this striving how do things just happen maybe organically isn't the right isn't the right phrase but just come about of their own means well again here's the thing i i, I want to be really careful to to be clear about this that a sort of psychological position of non-striving is different from passivity it's more like again recognizing like from birth to death everything's going to be like this like there's never going to be the one transformative event that makes everything click into place except maybe dying um it's just it's just all life it's just all like this and so you know that brings a level of satisfaction and relaxation to life where you're mm -hmm. like i don't i don't need to be anywhere else other than here but the here that you can't escape can be you know working on the agenda for the weekly meeting of your new startup as i was yesterday so I, I, I reject the question to some extent. <laughs> yeah. Like that, like that meme recently. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. No, that's what I was thinking of. I want to be ponytail again yeah. with you right now. <laughs> right. Um, what is maybe the, the best metaphor you've come up with? And maybe this is a good testing ground for your book. Uh, although maybe I have a little bit more context uh, than your, your average reader will, but what's the best metaphor you've come up with for this notion of non-doing um if that's even the right phrase you, you would use but like uh, i've always found it's a lot easier to to point at the thing through metaphor than use direct language of course so curious if there's any metaphors that you found particularly useful mm -hmm. it is so much easier to point out as an experiential fact than it is with language um and i what i think i would do if I were writing a, a bit in a book about this, which I apparently will be doing, I think I try to describe it with an experiential pointer. Like, oh, what, what, what is it like when you like allow yourself to do something versus make yourself do something? The funniest way to do this is to um, um, 
let yourself walk somewhere versus try to walk somewhere is one example I've used. Like mm -hmm. try to like move each one of your leg muscles in the like very self-consciously top down from your brain down to your legs, walk across the room and you'll like fall over. You'll walk really weird. Like you'll mess up the process that's already happening. But if you allow the process to happen, you are virtuoso at walking. You're totally incredible at it. Um, so it's, it, it, I think it's harder to talk about than to observe. It's very easy to observe. Um, it's just like you, you, you imagine like the ease of a hummingbird and you don't think like the hummingbird's like, fuck, fuck, fuck. I got to cross this flower off my to-do list. There's sort of, there's sort of energy of <laughs> effortless ability that you see in people and organisms who are really good at things. They're not sitting there managing it. Um, and so non-doing isn't like sitting on the couch. It's like moving around like a hummingbird that's not really thinking about moving around. It's just allowing it to happen. Um, and so I think one thing I, that people miss about non-doing is you're allowed to, you're allowed to, you're allowed to be a non-doing person who's extremely frenetic. Yeah. I know a lot of meditation teachers who have very advanced practices who are animated, lively, very themselves. They're not this like drugged up Berkeley cliche of the person who's always got like a shallow, insincere smile on their face and a glassy look in their eyes. Frenetic and this non-doing seem seem incompatible but that's fascinating to, yeah I, I always go back to nature uh and kind of natural processes the hummingbird is a great example breathing is one that i hear a lot of people use uh yeah akin to to walking um yeah and yet the thought of like uh mastering some kind of skill like let's take podcasting for example the the notion that podcasting could be to me like walking is is such a strange idea to grasp um and yet maybe throughout this conversation there's been large periods of time where i've been unconscious in doing it sure yeah i mean if if you're if you're over on the other side of this conversation every second being like uh how do i not screw this up um i i i empathize but it seems like you're doing fine um, I, I appreciate that. That's a good, uh, midway <laughs> check-in. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I think like when people think of non-doing, they think of like a toad sitting on a lily pad doing nothing, but like, have you ever had a conversation that's really exciting and you're talking really animatedly and things are just like, like it's not like pressured speech, like you're on cocaine when you can't say anything. It's just the words are flowing out almost faster than you can think them. You hear yourself saying things, and you're like, "Wow, that's really interesting. It's really cool that I'm saying this." Like that's not doing too. Like you're not managing that. You're just right. allowing something to emerge, um, and so allowing right. something to emerge can look really fast and intense and passionate too. I like that frame shift. Um, maybe slightly shifting gears although i think i think these are probably conversations that are one in the same in your writing there's two maybe not key concepts i've come across but two phrases or labels that you use uh, quite a bit one is this notion of deep okayness and yeah. the other is uh i think the other thing um which yeah, i think is akin to awakening um sure. but trying to are those actually one and the same or do you see deep okayness as like the self-acceptance 
um, that precedes the other thing, if there is like a connection between those two, but just wondering if you can kind of describe those and, and the relationship between them. Yeah. So I think, um, it's funny that this, um, deep okayness thing has become like the thing I'm known for on the internet. If any one single thing is what I'm known for, um, you know, to the limited extent that I am known, I don't want to like make it sound like I'm a celebrity or anything, but it's a thing that people bring up with me and I never expected it to be that way. I wrote this essay about therapeutic experience, which is something I'd never written about before. And I was like, this is terrible. This is like weird. Nobody's going to get this. And then now we're talking about it a couple of years later. Um, yeah. So I think like my, I'm really happy with what happened with that essay. I think if I had one problem with it, it would be that some people, I think, read that and they were like, oh, I need to hunt for this thing called deep okayness and I'm going to get mad at myself because they don't have it. And it became like this thing that they were like failing for not getting. And of course, if you haven't like accepted yourself deeply, then like coming up with some version of how it's going to look in your head and trying to look for that version of it in your head, it can get you somewhere, but mm -hmm. eventually you're going to have to drop that. Um, I experienced these moments after these powerful therapeutic experiences of feeling like there wasn't essentially something wrong with me. There's a lot wrong with me in relative terms. Like, you know, like you can always be a better husband and um, you can be more effective and make better decisions. But like on a basic level, I didn't feel the need to reject myself. Um, like, you know, improving myself felt more like, like working on a car I really liked, like an old cool car. Um, like, oh, let's see what's in this thing. Let's see how capable this thing can be. <laughs> Versus like, oh, fuck, I've got to drive this thing. Jesus, like <laughs> this, this, this attitude of, okay, we can work with this, like, and a complete fundamental attitude of we can work with this, which is really new to me. It was really surprising that I could feel that way. Just not stressed out about the basic project of being human. And I think that what I didn't realize then is that that is a great precursor to spiritual experience. It's related. Mm. I think they're different. Um, and I think where, where that ends and spiritual experience begins is spiritual experience. You start to question the whole no notion of like, what it is you're accepting, what it is a self is, what the boundaries around you are, right. who's piloting this thing. And um, one thing that's kind of a shame about a lot of meditation instruction is that there's sort of anti-thought and anti-story attitudes. Like, oh, you're not supposed to interface with thoughts and stories because those are just thoughts and stories. And like awareness is beyond thoughts and stories, which is true mm -hmm. on one level of observation. But we're all really stuck in stories by default. And I think a lot of people, when they start to repair the dysfunctional stories that they carry around um, and start to question them, you sort of like start seeing beyond the maze as you solve the maze, or as you like learn to navigate the maze better. I think those things can be collaborative rather than like Fascinating. antagonistic. Because you, at the end of the day, you still have to don this identity or, or some portion of this identity to interact with society. And so there is yeah, like, totally. Yeah. So, do, so uh, kind of solving or playing both games at the same time. Yeah. Solving maybe isn't the right phrase, but 
participating yeah, in, both, and in both of those journeys. And it's funny, you run into people in spiritual circles. I think this is what they call Zen sickness in Zen Buddhism, who like they've tapped into like a more spacious awareness or a looser sense of identity. And then they'll literally be like, I am nothing. I am, I am awareness. I am spirit. I am just, you know, and it's like, no, you're still a fucking person. Get over yourself. Um, you still have thoughts. You still have like, it's not throwing all of those things on the garbage forever, just gaining a different relationship with them. Are there at points in time this like uh, this ability to toggle between the two states, though? Like, is there a different resolution to the awareness you can opt into and out of? So if I were to say, like, this is the guy I would like to be like via long term practice in terms of like the vibe he gives off and what his mind seems to be like. like we're very different personalities, but the exemplar for me is a guy, Shinzen Young. Um, I know him to be an impressively dedicated teacher and very, very intelligent and like fiercely devoted to helping other people. And he's also just like funny and interesting and smart. Um, and he says at this point in his life, some days of the week, he's just like a fully awakened person for whom everything is flow. Every moment is arising out of the void and disappearing. He's just constantly riding this wave of becoming. And some days he's just like totally worried and in his thoughts and like a normal person um, who's never meditated before. And he has no preference. Like he fully accepts mm. both sides of experience. And, you know, that seems really, really beautiful to me. Um, a natural thing that happens when you start having these powerful meditation experiences is you're like, okay, now I have to be here in this very fluid, expansive, like you've talked about contemplative practice. Anyone at any level, like, I don't know how, how deep you've gone with this stuff, but at any level you can start to see, oh, there are points in my life that are more expansive and open and free. And I just want to be there all the time. And that's a really understandable impulse. And that can take you a long way. But I think if you can sort of horseshoe back around to, right. and all of life is good, no matter whether I feel fluid and open and easy and expansive. Like that seems really lovely to me. That's what I want to keep working on for decades and decades. Agreed. Whether or not you like it, you have this label of coach. I saw there were, uh, you tweeted the other day, you were trying to find a better uh -huh. label than it or some other <laughs> uh -huh. adjective to accompany yeah. it. Um, how do you, understanding that, uh, and I imagine this to some degree reflects your own experience, uh, you have to have your own lived experience and your own kind of revelations or epiphanies, if you will, uh, along this journey. It can't entirely be instructed. Uh, this is the whole notion of like the don't mistake the finger for the moon. Um, how do you reconcile being a coach with the idea that there, if you agree with this premise, that, that, that like mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it comes down to the individual and their own experience. Or do you think coaches can absolutely like prod you or accelerate you or kind of corral your, your thinking? And so it, it is uh, useful. It's not um, contradictory. Yeah. I mean, obviously to some extent, whether it's like learning works, you know, you can, people can tell you things and you can use them. I, I think, <laughs> I think it's, <laughs> I think it's right. no different. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't 
like I'm not like a like a meditation coach specifically, although I do talk about meditation with some of my clients. Um, I think whether it's like cooking or weightlifting or coding or writing, at a certain point you have to go it alone. Pointers from other people can help. Um, uh, I think what a good coach or a good teacher can do is offer a really tight feedback loop, like where you can learn a lot really fast um, by comparing your experiences and your results with somebody else's. Um, like I, I, I wish I could just go into somebody else's brain and if, if they desire some part of my experience, just transmit that. But um, no, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Um, maybe in the future. Maybe in the future. And I, if, if, with spirituality specifically, I really love the Koan tradition. The Koan tradition is really, really cool to me. Because, um, you know, there are all of these Jap Japanese and Chinese people who for hundreds of years have passed down this like psychoactive poetry because they felt like, okay, this specific series of words, uh, we have noticed that if we repeat these words to ourselves, they will break our brains in really interesting ways. Maybe that will happen in the future as well. And it's true. Like there are phrases and stories from the Zen literature that have been really like helpful to me, which is kind of mind blowing that, you know, near 1600, somebody came up with a little phrase and then I can repeat it to myself here now and tap into some awareness that's presumably the same awareness that they were tapping into. Right. Um, so if, if, if they can do that over, over the course of, you know, the three, 400 years, then hopefully I can like <laughs> get something across to somebody right. sitting in front of me <laughs> on zoom. <laughs> Yeah, and I think to to be fair, I was playing devil's advocate more than anything. I absolutely believe in the idea that uh, th there's value in coaching and instruction. Um, you you had also tweeted recently that um, the idea that we can use the same kind of methodologies and practices as someone uh, centuries or millennia ago uh, in this modern world where there's so much you know noise. Uh, and, and maybe with different objectives, even that instead we might be seeking aliveness and not this like absolute dissolution of self. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and how maybe you see the, I hesitate to use the word aims, but like the, the, uh, what we should be working towards or valuing in this like in regards to awakening is maybe slightly different than it has been historically, if I'm characterizing that correctly. Ooh. Uh, well, I, I feel that I immediately want to resign from the position of person who should tell other people what they're <laughs> aiming for. Um, <laughs> of course. I could tell you what I like. <laughs> or, well, or maybe if, is... that, if I phrase this in the wrong way, like uh, you could elaborate yeah. on that distinction between like... Uh, wanting aliveness in the present versus whatever the mystics of the past wanted and were using their, uh, their pro practices towards. Sure. So I, I should say before talking about this, that my views on this are really influenced by, um, Michael Taft, who's a meditation teacher I've worked with. Um, who's a great, great teacher. And, um, the views I am about to present are, um, like a, like a botched, poorly translated version of his views. I'd expect nothing less on a podcast. So, so that's yeah, totally acceptable. Uh, nice. Nice. 
Um, so one way you can sort out contemplative traditions of the world are um, transcendentalist versus not, or maybe we could call it transcendentalist versus immanentist. And if you're transcendentalist, the idea is that this world is simply a veil of tears or an illusion or a hologram, something to bypass. You should get out. So you should achieve nirvana. You should clear it all, all of your karma and then not be reborn. Or you should see through the illusion of things and renounce all worldly desires. Um, then the other version of it is we're already living in paradise. Nirvana and samsara are the same thing. This totally fucked up chaotic world is entirely beautiful and sacred. Uh, and not in a Pollyanna-ish way. From a certain perspective, one can treasure the ways in which it's complicated and difficult and unjust and strange. Um, those can be two sides of the same coin. And often there's a great deal of overlap between the practices of these traditions, but there's sort of a different endpoint. Um, I'm much more on the side of it's pretty amazing to be alive here and now, and uh, we should embrace what's here and try to work with it rather than like flee. But you know, like that's easy for me to say. I have a pretty comfortable life. Some, 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 some. Some tragedies have occurred in my life, but I'm pretty comfortable. And I I totally respect anyone who sees the, the horror and tragedy of the world and the hypocrisy and barbarism of humanity and says, I, I would like to meditate all day and then not come back to this, please. I just want to hmm. be part of the vast ocean of being. It's, it's fine for them. It's just not like the trip that I'm on personally. I think I'm in the same boat. Um. I, I want to revisit something you said several minutes ago, uh, and this might take us a little bit more down the the writing path. Uh, but you had said uh -huh. in regards to the essay around Depot Canis that at the time you wouldn't have expected that was something that people would start to um, l label you with or, or make you known for. Um, and this br this brings me back to I was listening to one of your uh podcast from a while back while back since you haven't done any recently where you talked about this idea of kind of just hitting publish without perfection as like a means of kind of advancing the conversation and not getting stuck on having to get to like this place of certainty or perfection in order to publish um how do you what what is like the the threshold or criteria for you to hit publish on something obviously it's not like maybe twitter is just any thought that pops in my head i'm i'm throwing out there um but at least for an essay like what are, what are the criteria and kind of the threshold that you use for knowing when to hit publish um i don't know i don't have a systematic answer to this i just try to send stuff now and again um i think I have tried to become more okay with the fact that almost nothing feels complete. And a lot of the time I feel some hesitation around anything I write. Um, and it is often the case that the things I write that people like are things that I hesitated to write and then hesitated to publish. What is that feedback like? Obviously, to some degree, you're publishing for yourself. 
and you're you have to marry that with publishing for an audience if this is going to be to, to some degree your your job you're going to make a an, uh, an income from it what is that feedback loop and kind of outsourcing of opinion to the audience versus leaning on your own gut and interests um what's that kind of interplay i don't really think about it much anymore i just like notice that i'm thinking about something and then i write it down and i'm like this is okay and then i publish it um after editing it to some extent like one thing I'll, i try to notice is that sometimes I get an inclination to write about something. It seems like a significant topic, but it also seems scary or like I'm going to do a bad job of it because it's too hard to explain. And I've tried over the years to learn to lean into those things more um, because those feelings usually mean I'm more personally invested in that idea or that emotion or that experience. And so that means I'm probably going to do a better job um, it's probably going to be a more sincere, heartfelt piece of writing, which is what people seem to care about. Other than that, there's no real system. Like, <clears throat> I think um, if you're fairly new at writing, it probably makes sense to have a daily writing habit and to be somewhat organized. Um, at this point, I've been writing for like 15 years, longer. And so... I think writing is just a part of who I am now. Sometimes I don't write for like a, a, a week and a half. And then I'm just like, oh, it's time to write something. And I write something. Like it's anti-fragile in the sense that if I if I manage to ignore writing, it'll come back to me. Um, and sometimes that's the right move. And sometimes I write like a ton. Um, I I really like the relationship I have with writing because I I don't, I'm not stressed out about it. Like, I know that the next thing is going to happen. You know, I'm getting on a plane this week and I'm like, I assume I'll have an essay when I get off the plane, but I'm like, I'm not really planning it. I think I already know the answer to this, but has your journey around kind of a uh, deep okayness and then awakening unlocked a lot in your writing uh, such that maybe any process or like over analysis about writing that you had historically kind of melted away or have those been uh separate somewhat separate journeys where you've had to um figure out your writing in tandem with figuring out this kind of larger viewer perspective on life towards awakening i'm still like a neurotic person is one thing to know um <laughs> but i still i still like worry about what i'm gonna write and then I still write something and I still worry that it's not good enough or that the next thing won't be good enough. I just notice all that happening and I'm like, yeah, that seems right. That seems like what happens in my life. Mm. I'll just allow that to continue. Um, when I'm saying like, oh, you know, every piece just like emerges. That doesn't mean like I'm just sitting there perfectly tranquil and then I'm like eating dinner mindfully and then I'm like writing something and I'm like, oh, it's great. I don't need to worry about that. Like I'm worrying and I'm stressing, but all of that is just going to happen in the way it wants to happen when it wants to happen. Um, so in that way, yes and no. Like my approach to writing hasn't been radically transformed. My writing hasn't been radically transformed. I would say over the course of getting more into this whole awakening thing, 
my writing has gotten better at the macro level and worse at the micro level. Because when I was younger, I cared a lot about impressing people with my intelligence. My work would be filled with all these beautiful gem-like little metaphors and tricks. Like I was always working on tricks and subtly inserting alliteration into things and shading certain sentiments just so with a well-chosen adjective. And I just can't be bothered with that anymore. I think I still write in a way that sounds like me, but it's more relaxed. And so I think because of that, my writing is more sincere, but it's less flashy. Um, I, you know, I, I look at writing I did like 10 years ago now and I'm like, oh, wow, like that's the, that's a cool little sentence. That's nice. Maybe I should do something like that again, but then I don't. And that writing also seems like very mannered to me. Like I feel my like insecurity just like radiating off that writing. Because I was trying so hard. Right. Yeah, that tracks. Um just two maybe final questions. One out of absolute curiosity, because I know, so for those who aren't aware, you're starting a uh, perfume business, if that's the right yeah. label for it, or if yeah. fragrance or something broader. Fragrance um, line, yeah. Okay. As someone who is like, I wear cologne uh, sparingly. Mm -hmm. Um, uh -huh. but have absolutely, and I, and I would say, I understand the power of, of scent, right? Like the ability to, uh, to transport you back or kind of teleport you back to, to different, um, moments in time or places, uh, the ability to like evoke emotion through scent. Um, but what is it for you that has made fragrance something like you you want to spend an inordinate amount of time on in life what's special oh about it's it? just beautiful um i think if you are not fragrance is one of the art forms like fragrance is a really well-developed art form um they're like established styles and established talents and new takes on the old classics and like anything a mature art form has where it has like a language and a canon of uh, great moments and, and and all this stuff, but but smart people in North America generally don't know about this. A because like I think fragrance is sort of denigrated because it's like considered shallow and like girl stuff. Maybe it has this connotation of like femininity and therefore unseriousness. Um, but fragrance is an extremely sophisticated art form. Um, the possibility space is wider than most people think. Like there's lots of fragrances out there that are extremely beautiful, like straightforwardly pleasant, but also really weird in their composition. One of my favorite fragrances, Bulgari Black, smells like vanilla rubber and tea leaves, like tires, like tire rubber. Somehow it's refreshing and uh, and like comforting. Um, and I like, I I don't know. I like I like things that smell good. It's not <laughs> it's not that complicated. I yeah, think it's it, something where right, with, 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 with fragrances, fragrance and and scent is really cool because it does reward intellect um, in the sense that you can train your nose via improving your vocabulary. So smells very undifferentiated. It's not like sight where it's easy to pick out colors. Like if you're like new to fragrance, you'll smell something. You'll be like, oh, that smells good. You won't really know why. And then you learn to smell things right. and you're like, oh, this is good because I like rose and I like this, even this particular kind of rose. And I like this particular kind of wood and all of these things. The linguistic experience actually structures the sensual experience. 
At the same time, it's fundamentally unintellectual in that it is not about abstraction. It's not about explanation. Something smells good or it doesn't. It evokes something for you or it doesn't. There's a mystery and ephemerality to it, which is like satisfying to, to me when I spend so much of my life dealing with demystifying things <laughs> and sort of taking the fullness of reality and slicing it into these little, little bits and putting words on those bits. Mm. It's also just, I, 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 in a very practical level, I, I have a friend who's extremely talented who wanted to start a perfume line and my wife is very good at business and she was happy to help us out. So it's, it's friends working on stuff that they like. It sounds like a, a perfect storm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm always, I'm always curious. I'm always fascinated by things that get other people going and I can see by your body language, your gestures, the smile, like obviously it's something you're passionate about. Uh, but I would say that the, the meta thing I'm passionate about is what other people like seeing people light up and the thing they're passionate about. Um, cool. so had to, had to drop that question. Um, Some well maybe in, in closing, uh, this is a complete non sequitur, but, uh, in closing, um, I always ask people the same question, which is to flip it around back on you. What's one question you would leave me and listeners with whether to think about or act on? Mm. One question, so much pressure. Um, if, if two or three <laughs> come to mind, I'll, I'll allow it. Um, sure. Maybe like, what's the uncomfortable thing that you want to do right now in your life? I like it. That actually, uh, it's very similar to the one of the questions in one of your essays that I pulled out it stuck with me the most, which was what is stopping me from surrendering fully and open-heartedly to my entire existence in this moment? Um, it seems like there's quite a bit of, of overlap there. Uh, but that's beautiful. Awesome. Sasha, well, thank you so much. For, the, for those who aren't aware, uh, I was trying to get you on this episode for months. <laughs> um, you said you weren't doing podcasts. And then yeah. you sent me an email saying you're tired of being a coward. Uh, so appreciate yeah. you uh, coming on. This was a lot of fun. Cool. Thanks for having me. <laughs>